I still recall from the books I read All the great empires built in my head But every year I raise one more I poured it out at a wardrobe door But I, I'm still seeking Tom Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Seeking Tumnus, the podcast where we dust off the tomes of our youth to see if they're still as good as we remember. On alternating episodes, we stick out a stiff upper lip and test our resolve against the books of today's youth. My name is Laurie, and I'm joined by my fellow hosts, the indomitable Bree. Bonjour. The irascible Keith Rowe. Good insert time of day to you all. And the abominable Patrick Moon. Hello, and thank you. This week's episode, Bree takes us by the hand and leads us into the Enchanted Wood by Enid Blyton. But first, some words of caution. This is a warning about the content of this episode of Seeking Tumnus. This podcast will contain spoilers. Spoilers for a 75-year-old book that's impossible to spoil for the intended audience. If you have not read this book, consider stopping the podcast now to read it. Or maybe just listen to Bree's synopsis and pretend you have. I won't tell. <laughs> Seeking Tumnus may also contain rampant gender identity disorder, a two-moon bonanza, miniature house servants masquerading as children, a hearty discussion about parenting, and an arboreal assembly of abstruse animalia. Now, let the rhythmic tones of the original moon, Pat, whisk you away to the magical world of the Enchanted Wood with page one. I like it that I'm the original moon. <laughs> I don't know how I managed to come upon that, that moniker, but I'll take it. Chapter one, how they found the magic wood. There were once three children called Joe, Beth and Franny. All their lives they had lived in a town, but now their father had a job in the country, so they were all to move as soon as they possibly could. What fun to be in the country, said Joe. I shall learn all about animals and birds. And I shall pick as many flowers as I want to, said Beth. And I shall have a garden of my own, said Franny. When the day came for the move, all the children were excited. A small van came to their door and two men helped their father and mother to pile everything into it. When it was full, the van drove away and the children put on their coats and hats to go with their mother to catch a train to the station. Now we're off, cried Joe. The country, the country, sang Beth. We might see fairies there, said Franny. The train whistled and chuffed out of the station. The children pressed their noses to the window and watched the dirty houses and the chimneys race by. How they hated the town! How lovely it would be to be in the clean country with flowers growing everywhere and birds singing in the hedges. We might have adventures in the country, said Joe. There'll be streams and hillsides, big fields and dark woods. Oh, it'll be lovely. You won't have any more adventures in the country than you'll have in the town, said their father. I dare say you'll find it all very dull. But that's where he was quite wrong. My goodness, the things that happened to those three children. And that is page one, and also potentially the best page of the entire book. Patrick, I could listen to you read page ones all day. Well done, thank you. Keith, what did you think of page one or chapter one? Did it draw your attention? Page one with Pat then did draw my attention. I loved that. Uh, I think I would have much preferred to have Pat read the entire book to me. Maybe I should look into this as a potential career avenue, just sort of reading the first pages of books to pick all and sundry. You're the new Stephen Fry. I love listening to his audiobooks. <laughs> That's high praise. It is. <laughs> Especially when my voice is absolutely shot currently. What about you, Bree? Apart from Patrick's wonderful tones, did page one capture your attention? Look, I found it a little dull, actually. I would have um, liked them to use something a little bit more exciting, but my four-year-old also struggled a bit through the first chapter until she got into the Enchanted Wood itself, so mm. there you go. What about you, Patrick? No, it, it sort of boded poorly, I think, for the remainder of the text. I'll, I'll get into that very <laughs> shortly, I suppose, but... Yeah, it didn't it didn't catch me. Sure. I liked the way they were escaping the city and they were glad to be escaping the city. That's not always the case if you're born in a big town or a city that going to the country could could be frightfully dull. You might miss the the perks of living in a big town, but no, I like the way the children were very excited about it. 
I like the way that they're, they're excited and they're sort of being uprooted by their family yeah. and they're, they're actually on board with it. And their dad's yeah. like, shut up, kids, you're going to hate this. <laughs> You're shutting them right down. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it gave away too much. It's Instead of, you know, there being potential adventures and you'll find out more about it later, they're like, yeah, you wait until you see what happens. It's going to be great. I think that's constant throughout the book. It keeps uh, forward selling what's going to come. Yeah. Yeah, there's a bit of foreshadowing and it's not subtle. You've got to remember that it's for a younger audience than we would usually do on this podcast, though, I guess, as well. True, true. And I, I'm still not sure that they deliver on the promises, but we'll, we'll come to that later. <laughs> Bree, we've heard how the book starts. How does it play out? Ah, the synopsis. Mm. It was published in 1939, and it's the first in a series of three books set around a mysterious tree called The Faraway Tree. The copy that I read was actually printed in 1984, but I think you guys read the reimagined Kindle version. Is that right? Very much so. I read a physical copy, but it was the edited version. So, yeah. The Franny. Okay. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, so that's the thing. So the first thing that I've got different is that Joe is called Joe, but it's also Bessie and Fanny. So they moved from the city to the country with their mother and father. And they soon begin to explore the dark, magical wood which adjoins their new property. Uh, it's a wood where the trees seem to whisper to each other. And Laurie was taking the uh, pisser, pisser, pisser of that this morning. <laughs> but during their first visit to the forest, they encounter a group of brownies holding a meeting and thwart a thieving goblin attempting to steal a bag from the brownies. They come across the faraway tree, which is an immense tree that reaches up into the clouds and into worlds beyond. Venturing up the tree for the first time, they discover that it grows plums and lemons and acorns all at once, and they befriend the magical folk who inhabit the tree and soon become friends with Moonface and Silky. Together they go on adventures in the magical worlds which rotate at the top of the tree, the land of take what you want, where you literally take what you fancy, the rocking land which spends its time trying to rock you off your perch, and my personal favourite, the land of Dame Slap, where all the naughty pixies and fairies are sent to learn good behaviour through corporal punishment. Was she slap in the Kindle version or was she snap? She was snap. Mm. So Turned her down. The original is better. We'll find out. Each adventure never lasts more than a couple of chapters and the only vague story arc as such involves the brownies which return at the end of the book to assist the children and the fairy folk to defeat a small army of red goblins. And there you have it. It almost sounds like we read different books. I mean, yes, the general sort of premise was the same, but for me there was no brownies, there was no dame slap, there was a dame snap, and there were elves. So it sounds like there was quite a bit of editing, and we'll probably come to that a bit later. Before we do that, Bree, why did you choose the book? Look, I realise it's a little bit on the young side for this podcast, but it was definitely the first chapter book that I remember picking up as a child and reading from cover to cover. I imagine that it was probably my mum or my dad that read it to me the first time. So it's got, you know, you know, it's a lot of nostalgia for me. Um, And I also have this version which has really beautiful and incredibly detailed illustrations by some twins called Janet and Anne Graham Johnston. So it's a, as you flick through the pages, you know, the pages really do come alive in my version. I also read a lot of Blyton when I was growing up and, you know, it really whisked me off to the English countryside and boarding school and fairies and adventures and spies and catching crooks in the Secret Seven. And I kind of always wanted to eat pop biscuits with Moonface and slide down the slippery slip. And I guess the other reason is that my daughter is four. She likes to read and she's ready for a chapter book. And this one's a an accessible one for her. So she has been entranced right from start to finish. So now, everybody, kill my childhood dreams. <laughs> we get to the portion of the show where we each describe what we think of the book. Keith, <laughs> why don't you start us off? Sure. Uh, it's interesting that it is a chapter book because it kind of felt like all these little stories that had just been tacked together. Like you said, there's not really this overarching story that, that progresses as you go through it. But back to my reading. So this was me reading it for the first time. I've never read this book before, so I did really struggle to get into it. And reading it was not something that I looked forward to at all because of that. And that meant that I read it in very small doses, which probably didn't really help with the flow of the story. The whole story itself was a fable-like creation of children's imaginative play. It was all the elements there were 
things that could easily have been dreamt up by children, the children in the story, I guess, because it was relevant to that time. I can see why those children might have wanted to dream that up as well, because everything they seemed to do at home was centered around housework and gardening. The, the elves, the trains, the dolls, the snowmen, they all have a foundation in common children's toys, pastimes, or just generally things that are of interest to miniature human beings. And this is, I think, the series appeal. They are accessible and relatable to children, though I'd imagine this would be in decline with each passing generation. Interestingly, Brie informed me recently that these books are still selling like hotcakes. So I guess if the nostalgic attachment can be used to indoctrinate children at a young age, there's no telling how long their popularity will run. <laughs> It's been going for 75 years. It's yeah. not like it's abating anytime soon. They've just reissued yet another version. When will the nightmare end? <laughs> the, the, the bad thing is maybe that there's a planned big screen adaptation of this, so I think that may prolong the enjoyment of this series or I don't know if I'm taking poetic licence too far by saying enjoyment, but it sounds like someone has, has picked up the film rights to, to many of Blyton's books and they're planning to milk them for all they're worth as I think Famous Five is also getting a film treatment. In terms of the story, it could have been a lot better, I think, if the children's characters were developed a lot more. They seem to be almost interchangeable and nothing much set them apart. I don't know whether that changes in the in the following books, but in this one, for me, there was nothing distinct about the children. Now, my reading of the book took a little bit of a turn. I decided that I'd read part of it to my two-and-a-half-year-old, and the book really, for me, took a new life when I did so. The writing style that seemed basic and utilitarian prior became engaging and satisfying. It was actually entertaining to a two-and-a-half-year-old in relatively small doses, which was pretty impressive. And he was actually able to recall the characters and elements of the story the following day after reading, although Saucepan Man became the Pancake Man, <laughs> which is probably something that I wish was accurate because Saucepan Man, for me, was a really annoying character. Oh, <laughs> yeah, so that, that, that's it, really. It was a it really two-speed enjoyment of the book, not so much at all when I was reading to myself, but when I was reading to, to my two-and-a-half-year-old, I did actually enjoy it. And I think that was captured with Patrick's reading of page one. I did enjoy listening to that in the same way. All right, Patrick, let's move to you. How did you feel about the book in general? I don't have any children to sort of redeem this book to me, so I, I found it so tedious so so tedious and it, it could like quite frankly have been subtitled like three idiot children and their stupid friends make the same mistakes over and over and over and over again it was it was non-stop and every chapter they're like let's go back to the top of this dumb tree and get ourselves into some ridiculous trouble like oh it's the the land of unmitigated and powerful spankings at the top of the tree this week let's just like put our heads up there and just see what happens just in case hang on a second you didn't even get to see the spankings in your version <laughs> it was terrible and the land of simplistic retellings of fairy tales that already sucked quite frankly and were made only worse by being repeated in this uh, sort of really dumbed down fashion and it's awful. And they, they never seem to learn. The characters are completely interchangeable, like Keith said. They're just wandering around waiting to, to bump into some kind of trouble. And I understand that it's for children. I think that's probably the, the only redeeming quality that it has is that it's meant for children who are who are quite young and can appreciate the fact that these sort of naive idiots are going to wander into the land of unexpected and undesired colonic irrigation at some point and <laughs> manage to get themselves out by absurd fluke deus ex kinds of happenings. While I read it, I remembered that I had obviously come across it at some time in my youth. I must have been super young because I don't I don't really remember any of it other than the fact that Moonface is a character and he really sort of stuck out in my memory going back through it again. So... There was a, a little bit of a nostalgia element, but it, it wasn't enough to save it by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> I'll step in, Pat. I, I really agree with everything you just said. It, it seemed to me that the children had some kind of learning disorder or they were just simpletons or, or something. It was unbelievable that they would keep saying, oh, we better not go back up the top of the tree because we keep getting in trouble. And yet they would go to the top of the tree, they'd climb the ladder and they'd end up in, in, in trouble once again. It was just... Uh, it just, there was the story, there was no overarching story. It was just these mini adventures that kept happening. And 
it just it was just irritating for me. I, I appreciate that this book is aimed at a very, very young audience. And I kind of suspect, I'm not a parent, but I kind of suspect from my own youth, thinking way back, that maybe repetition is something that kids enjoy. If they can hear the same phrase over again, it's something that they can say along with you. Or the same joke in the case of the, sauce, the saucepan man, yeah. over and over and over. Oh, man. <laughs> The Saucepan Man, for people that haven't read the book and are just listening along, the Saucepan Man was a man that was covered in saucepans, uh, saucepans and they would clang all the time and it made him partially deaf. So every time there was a conversation involving this character, he would mishear things. No, there's no deer here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's your only chance. No more, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that joke got old really fast for me as an adult. I just, I, I, I never read the book before, so there's no just nostalgia for me. It was. Just- but my daughter giggled every time <laughs> really? there was a mishearing. Oh man, there was one point actually where he, uh, he took the pans off, and I thought finally we might have him hear something for the first time. But still, he had to have that same joke. I was devastated. It was at that stage I hoped an errant arrow or something would pierce his chest now that it was unprotected. <laughs> but it didn't happen. So I think probably the biggest point is that this book is for a very, very young audience and it probably would never have been entertaining to, to us adults um, that are reading it now. But for kids, you know, if, if two out of four hosts um, have children and both their children appreciate it and that then it's hitting the target market and it doesn't really matter what we think of how well it was written or, or whether it was missing story arc or whether the characters were shallow if it if it meets its objective then I, I guess that's probably why it's been so popular having said that though I, I really can't believe that they have sold as many as they have especially when I read somewhere that they were pulled from schools because they lacked literary merit. They were pulled from schools in the UK. So uh, I don't think she was terrifically popular as an author amongst other authors. I think she was shunned, wasn't she? Like she was literally not invited to speak on television or on radio or anything. She was, you know, the literary quality or lack of quality of her work was, yeah, kept her away. She probably spent all her free time just counting her money instead. It must have been hard for her. Yeah, I did also read that she would bang out a chapter or something, or maybe you were telling me, Brie, that she would bang out a chapter really Mm. quickly and then move on to the next one and the next one and the next one. So she would have some huge volume of work being produced. But, yeah, I don't think she really planned ahead. She said said at one stage, uh, I think the article said, she just closes her eyes, thinks for a minute, and then starts writing, and that's one chapter or one story done and she moves on. So I think that's evident. (laughs) (laughs) But it works. Does she have some sort of amnesia? Because it it felt like she just closed her eyes and opened them again and thought up exactly the same story. Right. Over and over again. What if the children climbed the tree and got into some kind of trouble? <laughs> yeah. And the, I guess the other thing for me is maybe because it's 75 years old that the level of fantasy wasn't very impressive. The things that she came up with were like a man wearing saucepans or a hill that spun around really fast or a hill that jostled you up and down. There wasn't, there wasn't a great deal of creativity, even to the point where one of the lands they visited... It was Goldilocks and the Three Bears and then there was a Santa land or a snowman land. There was nothing. That doesn't exist in the real book. Oh, really? It exists in mine. Yeah, it didn't seem that she actually brought too much to the table. The only thing I can really think of is the tree, you know, and maybe Moonface. But everything else is derivative of other works, um, whether it's Goldilocks or Santa Claus or elves and pixies, things that I think have been around for years prior to this book. So I don't feel she brought anything wonderfully new except for maybe the concept of a a world changing at the top of the tree every day that led somewhere else. So, yes, did not enjoy this book. Bree, you loved it as a child. You're reading it to your children now. What are your impressions of the book as an adult? Did you enjoy it? I did not. I struggled through it. <laughs> I admit I admit to um, skipping the odd chapter or shortening it. No wonder you missed Santa Claus. Yeah, well, I didn't have to cut Santa Claus. He doesn't exist in my version or in life. <laughs> Spoilers! <laughs> Spoiler, Spoiler alert, children. I'm going to need to put a content warning on here. Look, through the prism of my four-year-old, I I love that she has been captured by this and 
She looks for mushrooms when we go for walks and hopes to see a brownie sort of hiding behind one, which I believe is an elf for your versions. But the quality, I was bored. I struggled through it. But she wants to read. We finished it tonight and she wants to read Chapter 1 again tomorrow. So (laughs) who am I to deny? Oh, Jesus. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) You've you've died and gone to purgatory. (laughs) Yes, yes, indeed. It's funny because when I bought the book, I was actually walking through the city and saw a a new bookstore. And I like to pop into bookstores. And I knew that this book was coming up and it was two for $10. So I bought The Enchanted Wood, and I think the next one's something like uh, The People of the Faraway Tree or something like that. Oh, um, man, you poor bastard. And I've, <laughs> I've got that second book now, and it's never going to be read. So um, <laughs> if someone wants to hit us up on Twitter, let me know. I'll send the book to you free of charge. <laughs> you should have invested in some more uh, Ranger's Apprentice books instead. <laughs> I should have, indeed. Definitely. Bree, was there anything else you felt about the book? No, look... So much of it just relates to the nostalgia for me and I really wanted to, when I was a kid, eat a pop biscuit or a toffee pop or whatever they're called and, yeah. They were pop cakes in our version. Yeah, pop cakes, I think. Mm. I'm not sure why they would have changed that one, but anyway. That seems a bit silly to me. Like, don't biscuits exist world round? I'm not sure. Maybe pop biscuits became like a drug reference in the 60s or something. <laughs> Gosh, don't know. Hmm. <laughs> Did the nostalgia survive a, a rereading? Look, I remember why I liked it. It's a typical sort of girly thing. At one point, Bessie gets to put on a fairy costume and fly about and they get in a toy aeroplane and go on a go on a ride and you sort of you dream of being able to be a pilot yourself, those sorts of things. So for me, that was... Yeah, I remembered why I liked it as a kid, but it doesn't stand the test of time for me <laughs> unless you're reading it through your the prism of another child. I will say, Bree, that you gave me the opportunity opportunity to look at the, uh, the illustrated version of the book, mm. and that actually I thought was quite good. Sure, the writing is exactly the same, although it might have been culled down if it was an illustrated book. Mm. But the illustrations really did add something. The book that I have is just mostly printed text with a few sort of rudimentary drawings um, occasionally popping up in the book, but they're just black and white sort of scrawls, like a cheap Quentin Blake maybe. Seeing your copy of the book, I was a, like I came around a little bit. I really think as a young boy I would have much preferred to have looked at the illustrations as well as had the book read to me. So, yeah. that As an older boy I would also have yeah. preferred <laughs> to have some pictures to look at. Preferably unrelated, but... I'm always a bit two ways on pictures though because when you read a book it's nice to have that image in your head and it's a bit like seeing a film before you read the novel. If you're reading the novel after you've seen the the film you picture Harry Potter as Daniel Radcliffe for example. So for me it's always a bit of a double-edged sword. You don't have that opportunity for your own imagination to take over. So whilst I agree, I mean the, the, the illustrations are beautiful and they really do sort of set the tone and add a nice description to the otherwise mundane words and adventures. But, yeah, double-edged, always. I I think when you showed me the book, I was three-quarters of the way through my copy of the book, and when I had to read the remaining quarter without those illustrations, I found it regrettable. So, (laughs) (laughs) The illustrations in the Kindle version were really, really poor, and I just completely ignored them because they kind of annoying. Yeah, they were pretty basic. Hmm. Keith, you had a discussion point you wanted to raise. So I had a look into Enid Blyton a little bit because it can be intriguing to peek behind the curtains at the private life of authors, not only because it gives you an insight into their life experiences and the way that that has shaped their works, but also it can just be flat out interesting. And it was a balance of both here. Particularly with children's books, my first thought is always that they're probably great parents themselves who had wonderful childhoods and generally loved children. But from what I've read about Blyton here, that wasn't exactly the case. So she has two children, both girls, Gillian and Imogen, and they've both spoken out against her home life or their home life. Enid herself painted it as happy, functional, and that sort of suggested that that was the key to her success as a writer of children's literature. The only surviving daughter, Imogen, now describes her mother as arrogant, insecure, pretentious, and added that she had not a trace of maternal instinct. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow. No punches were pulled there. No, not at all. Wow. Is it necessary to do that when she's already, you know, long dead and gone? 
Like, it's sort of laying the boot in a little bit. It is a little. Surely you'd have a chip on your shoulder, though. If, if everybody's um, saying, you know, thinking the same way that Keith did, that your mother was this wonderful mother that must have told you beautiful stories your whole life, but she was really a bit of a cow. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you just would feel the need to... Correct the record a little. Yeah, definitely, yeah. yeah. Uh, mm. She also noted that Enid did not read any of her famous stories to the children, and they described their nursery as a lonely place where their mother's visits were hasty and anger-filled. She also expands on this, suggesting that Blyden only wanted a relationship with the children in her books, perhaps because she could control intricately the every behaviour of these idyllic fictional creations. But turning back the clock, I guess this is maybe a bit more of an explanation for, for that and the books as well. She had a difficult upbringing herself. Her cutlery salesman father cut loose from his family when Blyton was 12, and some suggest that that was where her emotional development stagnated. The resounding picture I got from this look into Blyton's life was that she was pretty much a wholly selfish person who simply discarded aspects of her life that did not interest her, and that that was true of her first marriage, and I think to an extent her second as well. Also, when you consider the volume of books that she punched out, it was more than 750. It's hard to imagine a home life where the children could have been anything but starved of attention. And reading all this stuff made me a little bit tempted to watch the 2009 movie Enid, which stars Helena Bonham Carter, probably not as um, Moonface. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so is it the same for you guys that you assume that with children's authors, they have had these, um, you know, these storytale upbringings and their great parents with um, a fondness for children? Or do you, do you take the other, the other angle that... Perhaps they're damaged humans that have uh, escaping to a world that they can create and, and maybe recreate their own childhood in a way that is much more pleasing to them. I think the, the latter, actually. I think I've been disabused of the notion that people who sort of create art are in a lofty, sort of reflective kind of place. But, um, nice of you to elevate this to art now, Patrick. Mm. Well, you know, it wasn't... Uh, because I've heard similar things about Roald Dahl. Oh, don't say that. And... Uh, People who you do sort of put on a pedestal just being a bit sort of priggish in, in general. I think I think it's a trap. Firstly, how dare you say that about Roald Dahl? I know. <laughs> I, I imagined Roald Dahl as like the perfect person to have as a, as a grandfather. Like you'd imagine that he'd be funny and engaging and, and, and just sit down and spin you a tale with magnificent vocabulary and it would be great and you've just, you've just crushed it. You've crushed my dream. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I only remember this sort of very vaguely, so I could just be um, slandering poor old Roald Dahl. But that's that's as I remember hearing about him. And yeah, I, I think you you start to see that a lot about people that you you idolise. Unfortunately, they don't stand up to scrutiny when you, you scratch a bit of that sheen off, as uh, Laurie and I have discovered to our chagrin with young Patrick Kane this week, but that's another story. <laughs> yeah, what about you guys? I would have hoped that she would be lovely and maternal and, you know, she wants to create these worlds that she sees through her own kids and communicate them to others. So I'm actually really disappointed to hear that. I'm a mother myself and I like to be able to stimulate my kids' imaginations, whatever sort of level they're at. So whether that's crawling around on the floor pretending to be a, a turtle as I was earlier this evening or reading my daughter this book because she now sees green monsters hanging out of the camellia bushes when we go on our walk. I think that's part one of the best parts of being a mother and a parent. So this really has not been a good exercise for you. This is a terrible <laughs> idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, That is really depressing, though, that if your mother had written, did you say 750 books? Yeah, crazy, isn't it? Right, mm. so 750 books, and I assume that the majority of those were children's books, if not all of them. And that that sounds like she was too busy to be reading any of them to her children, and they were sitting off playing in their own and occasionally getting furious visits from their mother. That's that's horrid. Yeah, definitely. Mm. I guess you can see now why she's so um, filled with so much vitriol in her assessment of her mother's parenting. Right. Yeah. But there are so many societies and things dedicated to the memory of Enid Blyton. I mean, I did a bit of a 
quick search on the internet and they've got the Enid Blyton Society who has all of these members right across the world. There are sites dedicated to her from France and Portugal. There's the annual Enid Blyton Day where all of these people gather to honour her memory and talk about her works and they have newsletters and, I mean, it's quite astounding. Mm, I guess the message here is don't scratch too far beneath the surface if you really like something. (laughs) (laughs) I I might do that just now, Keith, and see if I can tear your dreams down a little bit here. Dahl was much of the time world historically unpleasant. As a boy, he wrapped his sister in pillows and shot BBs at her. As an adult. That's endearing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, that's serial killer material right there. He wrapped her in pillows. He wrapped her in pillows, guys. Come on. Well, that's true. As an adult, he picked loud fights at dinner parties just to create a spectacle. He bullied editors, sold out friends, and insulted his children. Neil once recounted a a charming moment from their first date. I remember his taking a sip of wine and looking at me for a long moment through the candlelight. I would rather be dead than fat, he said. (laughs) (laughs) He was, in many ways, a stereotypical mid-century wealthy imperial Brit, a bullhorn of prejudice and entitlement whose gaffes could be almost touchingly clueless. And apparently an anti-Semite to boot, according to the rest of the I hope that's a fully referenced article. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just spewing whatever I could find on the internet, of oh, course. Dear. All right. So maybe check that before you um, go burn your books. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's from the New York magazine. Well, not the New York Times, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I can't. <laughs> that's just a quick Google. But, yeah, so childhood heroes, they're not all they're cut out to be. <laughs> Thoroughly depressing. Let's move on to something else. Bree. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to bring up the topic of selective editing. So we've discovered that the books have obviously been reimagined over time, anything from words to entire chapters. So the whole Santa Claus thing, I did a bit of a quick research myself last night to, to figure out what had happened, and apparently the chapters around Mr. Oom Boom Boom and Santa Claus were from a fourth, more comic book style Enid Blyton about the faraway tree. And they've actually taken chapters from that particular comic book section and inserted it here, which because they're such short adventures, you can do, I suppose. But it's not just that. They take out references to brownies and gollywooks and they've changed pop cakes to pop biscuits and I'm sure that there are oh and I don't know about you your version but my version has it feels like every second or third paragraph the word queer in it to mean strange or different or interesting and I had a quick word search on the kindle version and I think the word didn't come up at all so or it came up once how do you feel about the selective editing Are you better to keep the essence of the time and teach children that words have different meanings or meanings that can change over time? Or do you agree with removing gollywogs because of the racist connotations? Yeah, for me, I think it becomes confusing for children if if they're listening to a word and then they go to school and use that same word and come to understand that it has a very different and undesirable meaning. So... I I guess the word queer has changed dramatically from being just strange to meaning homosexual. And I don't think at this age you want to confuse children. I'm I'm kind of happy for that kind of editing to take place. What do you guys think? Yeah, I guess the question then is where you draw the line. Once you start making changes, it can be difficult to to know where to stop. And I guess it feels here from Bree's perspective that they've maybe taken it a little bit too far. And it's lost some of the essence. And I saw that in people's reviews of it online as well, that people were a bit upset that they were reading these different versions when they really wanted to go back to what they remember from their childhood. I guess they're trying to keep it relevant as well, though, and that they want to keep those mega sales happening. And at some point it's going to be just too dated for that to, to be feasible. Yeah, it still was very dated, though, but I guess maybe it's removing anything that has the slightest hint of contention because... It really is aimed at very young children, so you don't want mm. to get offside with those parents. It can be quite touchy. Yeah, and you can't really have a conversation with the kids either at that point at age, you know, you're talking like age two and a half, three, four. Like we, we're we not going to get into a, a debate 
about the you know the merits of censorship and and linguistics yeah but i'm not sure that they're going to retain all of those words either to go out and use in the in a particular setting although maybe who knows isn't that the part of the point of reading to children though that especially if you're dragging your finger across the page that you're hoping to expand their vocabulary and in mm. and assist them with learning new words and uh, and reading in general that you want to not be leading them astray or, or, or introducing confusion at that young age? Um, I still think that it's important for kids to understand that, you know, there are lots of words with two meanings and, and you know, that could even be flower spelled differently to, you know, the flower that you find in a bouquet. You know, it's, um, you know, there's a lot of anomalies in the English language and lots of things mean, you know, different things and, I think that you can get that nuance over time if you introduce it. Sorry, might I say that Pat's parents must have been very vociferous readers because he has a fantastic vocabulary and I must compliment you on it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I did read a lot when I was a kid. I couldn't put books down, really. It It was all I ever did. I don't know how I feel about the censorship component because I certainly read things like um, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn when I was growing up and in their sort of unedited forms. And but I, I think, again, like it's it's just those few years of difference that between that kindergarten age and when you're, you know, like a six, seven-year-old when you can start to, to do a few more of those like logical prefrontal kind of exercises where you where you learn something and can set it aside. So how would you feel if some of those books were edited as well? I mean, I can't remember which one it was. Was it David Copperfield where they talk about child slavery effectively? You know, you've got these 10-year-olds going out to work. Would you would you edit that? Would you sanitize that? I wouldn't edit any of those. And I think that's sort of what I was thinking of then is yeah, where where do you draw that line because yeah, I think I think if you edited Twain, I would, or, or Dickens, or like that's absurd. It's ridiculous. Mm. There's there's would be no excuse for that. I don't think. I even read recently that they've edited The Great Gatsby to be accessible to different levels of readers. So you know you've got like level one where they strip out vast swathes of text to you know the more advanced reader, so that people are actually reading these stories because. Sometimes they can be inaccessible or their words or their construction is such that it seems inaccessible to people and this just helps them out a little. I kind of, I don't know how I feel about it. Yeah, I don't think that's necessary. Like if you're not quite ready for The Great Gatsby, then there's plenty of other books out there that can build you up to The Great Great Gatsby. Mm. You haven't really read, you know, Fitzgerald's text unless you've read Fitzgerald's text like there's maybe I have a purist bone in that sense but I don't I don't think it's right I suspect people will go and watch Leonardo DiCaprio and leave it at that that's that's <laughs> my worry so maybe maybe it's not a bad way of introducing some of those really important things or elements of yeah. to encourage people to take that next step maybe I I do I do think there's a difference between books that are written for the broader population and books that are written for, like, four-year-old kids. Yes, this is true. <laughs> Longbow being drawn. <laughs> I, I do like that you sort of link to movies there, Brie, because it's kind of the way movies have gone in recent times. Everything is a reinvention of something from the past. So if these books are being rewritten to modernise them, to make them more contemporary, then it's kind of the same in, in the movie world in that everything is just being recreated and churned out for a new audience. But are you losing the older texts? If like if this is all you can find, are these rewritten, re-edited, whatever versions? Are you sort of relegating the original versions to some kind of historical arc? I think so. That's what they're that's what they're setting up to do. Mm. The people in the future will be remembering these versions as opposed to the originals. I'm not sure that's entirely a bad thing. I mean, if you're reading to your children and instead of Franny, you, you use the original Fanny and and whatnot and they go to school and they repeat these things and then are subsequently laughed at. I don't, I don't see what benefit there is to keeping the original. I don't care about a person's name as much as I care about the, the great plot. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree with that because it's the same with the, the, the racist elements as well, which which become very controversial over time. But at the time they're they're published, they aren't, and 
you know, times change and you have to accept that and appreciate that, that, you know, what was acceptable in the 40s or 30s is no longer. Well, that's the thing. If you've got a book that's for four-year-olds, I wouldn't say that you take the stance, maybe like you were suggesting, Pat, where you keep in the the, the racist epithets or the or the gollywogs or, or, or whatever. It's not accept If it's not acceptable now and it's for children, why would you make children feel bad by keeping them in historical purposes. I'm not saying that you go and burn the original versions. If you're an adult and you enjoyed a particular version as a child, then sure, that should still be accessible. You should be able to um, go to a library or some archive and, and read that version. But I don't see any value to um, to leaving that kind of stuff in and forcing it upon children when it's not the world they live in now. I agree with that for the racial overtones, but... Um... I don't know, in my version here, they go to a station on the train that's called Gollywog Station and you've got these three Gollywogs that get off the train. Now, to me, I mean, my daughter doesn't even know what a Gollywog is. She doesn't know the sort of historical context. It's not like they're saying anything negative about Gollywogs and what that comes from. It's just... Yeah, let's not get into gollywogs because that's very contentious. Every time I walk past a toy store and I see them, I kind of grind my teeth a little bit. Cringe a little? Yeah, that's fair enough. And the biscuits as well. (laughs) Yeah. And on the other side of the coin, I can see a sort of grandmother who had gollywogs as a child and look at them and think that there's nothing wrong with them at all. And mm, yeah, it's it's, that's a very big debate that we probably don't want to <laughs> get into. Yeah, what you've described there, Bree, is the fact that they have been successfully edited out of modern society that your children yes. have no idea what they are. So yeah. I think, you know, they've done a good job of getting rid of them. Mm. One thing, Bree, I'm interested, seeing as you did have the original version, there was a there was a very glancing comment about the father having lost money at one stage. Like father had lost money so we wouldn't be able to afford milk this week or something like that. I don't even recall that in this version at all. All right. Was it early on? I can have a glance through. I I, I don't recall where it was exactly in the book, but I kind of wondered whether he might like have a gambling problem or something (laughs) that they edited out. That's where I went as well, but then I figured it must have been just actually dropped and lost some sort of currency because it didn't really fit. I figure it's because they're in the 30s and, you know, it wasn't necessarily the greatest time in the world to be alive. Right. He might not have had the money in the first place rather than quote unquote lost it. (laughs) The general behaviour of the parents, or the, the mum in particular, was a little strange in, in that she'd let her children go off with these strange people. All night long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, seeing as we haven't talked about it, those kids were little punks as well. They were sneaking out of home at all hours of the night, coming back in, in the morning. These very young children, coming back at 4am or just before sunrise. And I feel like Joe did some really naughty things at one stage early in the book that made me think he was a little bit of a brat. Like he, he threw something at someone or he bullied someone or he he was always ignoring people's suggestions about not climbing up to the, the tree in case he dies or something <laughs> like Couldn't that. Couldn't they have given those parts to the girls in the rewrites? Uh, what? It didn't Being matter. a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Being a little bit ballsy and rebellious. If you're going to rewrite something, you just rewrite it, you know, from front to back. My reading of it was that they were very naughty and rude little children initially and they, they became friends with everybody later in the book. But in the first couple of chapters, I just couldn't believe how naughty they were and I was a bit surprised that they were popular books for children. I thought the parents would have been well annoyed by uh, by these kids sneaking off in the middle of the night. But isn't that part of the charm? Yeah, I guess so. I thought the kids were were bland throughout. I didn't really see much kind of development there. Not at all. I think I said they're not known for their magnetic personalities is one of my notes. (laughs) (laughs) From what I read as well, I think that's common for Enid Blyton's stories. Uh, They're all these kind of idyllic children, like the way that they went out and sought the goat and the rabbits, sorry, the goat and the was it chickens and the shovel. the shovel for their father was very... I guess if you're painting this picture of them as being mischievous in the Enchanted Wood, at home it's very different. They're, they're always just looking to please their parents. Unlike Enid's own children, perhaps. Very much. <laughs> Pat, did you have a, a topic you wanted to raise? I did have a topic I wanted to raise, and this is more generally pertinent to... <laughs> to the podcast we've been doing, I suppose, rather than to Enid Blyton specifically. But I I like browsing the relationships advice subreddit. 
on a uh, on Reddit, mm. and there was there was one query that a, a redditor had that struck me as particularly pertinent to our purposes, and uh, I was I was wondering what your what your reactions were to it, and so I'll just read it to you. History. I'm a, a young adult author with USA Today bestseller, a number of awards. I met Phil, my boyfriend, when we were taking night classes together, and we ended up being in a uh, being partnered in a project. He's always been kind of iffy on my career, since he considers himself to be a smart guy above a lot of things, etc. When we were moving, uh, and I was off for a series of conferences, he took it upon himself to package up several boxes worth of my books and drop them off at Goodwill. I didn't know about this until about two weeks later when I returned. He'd already had the chance to unpack a lot of what we had. I realised some of my my books were missing and asked if he had not just unpacked them because he didn't know how I'd like to organise them. He said no, he took them to donate because they were all children's books and he didn't want to look at our library and see so many brain-dead books and whiny teenager books. He's one of those people who gets upset about adults reading young adult fiction or even teenagers sometimes because it's not what he personally prefers. Some of the books he donated were gifts from other authors, advanced copies, things like that. I don't know what oh. to do about it. I called the place he dropped them off at, but they've already been processed and are in retail stores now. What should I do here? I'll dump the guy. Are you kidding me? <laughs> How do you even ask? Those are philosophical <laughs> yeah. differences. That relationship cannot last. Wow. I, I would take him out to a field and beat him savagely with a cane oh, stick. Oh, God. Talk about burning books. That's just... Horrendous. <laughs> what a narcissistic psycho. <laughs> yeah. I, I like that. I like the, the sort of subtly <laughs> dropping it in like, you're a young adult author, but uh, I, I got rid of all these young adult books because they're, they're whiny and <laughs> brains dead. Disrespectful. God. Wow. That's horrible. <laughs> Was this in America? I, I presume this is in America. Sue the bastard. <laughs> sue him for all his yeah, absolutely. So uh, beat him and then sue him on your on no, your. No, we're part. not right. We we don't. <laughs> that sounds like bullying to me. That sounds a bit like Rangers <laughs> Apprentice type violence. I don't. I can't know. have any double no, standards. Throw no, no. back to the Rangers Apprentice years. Oh. Yeah, it's it's pretty rough, and I I find it especially given what we've been doing over the the past number of weeks there's there's actually a lot of value to these books and there's a lot of quality in these books and i, I think apparently people are are really missing that i mean even harry potter is young adult really right i'm not sure whether they dodged a bullet by finding out early that this person is a psychopath or whether <laughs> having lost all of your favorite childhood books is the bullet. <laughs> They've just moved well, in together. They're moving across they, the yeah. country together too. <laughs> right. So, uh, I mean, I, I think they haven't dodged the bullet so much as realised that the bullet is heading in their direction far too late. It, was there any um, follow-up from the OP in that? No, I had a I had a quick look to see whether they um, had updated or anything, but there hasn't been anything else on the account. This was about nine days ago. So I can only hope that this poor woman has dumped her... Dropkick of a boyfriend and found someone more discerning. Can you send her a link to this podcast when we upload it? <laughs> Just call it our response to her request for relationship advice. Dear Seeking Tumness. <laughs> um, I'm sure I can do that. I don't know whether she'll ever check this throwaway account again. <laughs> yeah, see, that's... that's um. It's <laughs> the direction that I would love to take the podcast with people's uh, young adult fiction related <laughs> queries. I'm sure there's so many out there with burning questions. The only risk there, Patrick, is if we did send the link, is she would listen to it and be an Enid Blyton fan. Or Roald Dahl. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. just, we love Roald Dahl. Just heartbreak on top of heartbreak. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to have to mentally separate myself from that story about Roald Dahl and just continue to enjoy his works, I think. Yep. I'll just I'll send you uh, sort of twice daily no. links, whatever I can <laughs> dig up on it. Please don't. Exercise in double think, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, that that seems to be how people deal with these kinds of things, I think, as they minimise or push down that discontented voice at the back of their head that's saying, uh, do you really, really like this guy? And uh, just sort of replace it with that idolisation, the unquestioning fandom. Wow. All right. Let's, let's move on to scoring then. Uh, scoring with Bree? 
Ah, yes. So three options again this evening. First one is I will happily read this to my child and look up recipes for pop biscuits while I'm at it. Option B, I will read this to my enemies. Ha 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 ha. Or option C, I would not read this to my worst enemies. Patrick Moon, get you out of the way. Yeah, it's probably the the latter. I would just prefer to forget that this book exists at all. Option C, <laughs> my enemies are spared for today. <laughs> Esteemed host Laurie. I I agree with Pat. If if I never have to see or hear about this book again, you know, I'll be very happy. Those two books that I have will be departing my bookshelves and not returning. Will you see the movie? Uh, you know what? I, I am tempted to see the movie, to see if someone with some writing ability actually takes the premise and adds an overarching story and makes it interesting. Hmm. Keith? This is a little contradictory, but I'll say a very little amount from column A and a large amount from column C. (laughs) (laughs) Is that because you'll be reading it to your child but wishing that you weren't? (laughs) Well, no, I did enjoy reading it because of the way he interacted with it. But, yeah, I only read a very small amount of it and I think that's, that's enough for me. I think those are the the same sort of paternal instincts that would lead you to, you know, take a bullet for your child. (laughs) (laughs) You would do it, but not really by choice. And you, Brie? Of course I'm going to read it to her. She's the perfect age to be read to, the perfect age to have this type of book read to her. She's interested in fairies and all those sorts of things, much as I try and push her back to trains and planes. Um, But what... I, the other thing that I think I'll do is I was thinking maybe I'll make some biscuits with popping candy in them or something just to sort of try and keep the magic alive for her. Aww. That's all for this episode. Thanks for joining us. Sorry if we destroyed your childhood. But if you return next episode, at least we might crush the hearts of your son, daughter, niece or nephew as we traipse into another woodland reading The Darkest Part of the Forest by Holly Black. Until then, steer clear of strange shrooms in the woods, lest you become a famously terrible children's author, and keep reading. Firstly, how dare you say that about Roldal? He wrapped her in pillows. He wrapped her in pillows, guys. Come on. <laughs>